podcast. If it's your first time here, welcome. My name is Jonty, and I'm a writer, producer, editor, and occasional eater of crumpets. And I'm your host here on Blue Rose. Something else I do a lot of is watch films. And occasionally, I like to get behind a microphone and talk about them in podcast format for you guys to enjoy and listen to. For regular listeners of this show, you'll be familiar with the deep dive format, where I spend about an hour diving into the history of a particular film, as well as the occasional guest episode. This week, however, I'm going to be trying something a little bit different for this show. I'm going to be talking about two new release films in more of a review-style format. But without any further ado, let's get into this week's episode of the show. Rob Savage's Stephen King adaptation of The Boogeyman, and James Mangold's conclusion to the Indiana Jones saga, The Dial of Destiny. scary things we don't understand our minds try to fill in the blanks sometimes the best thing to do is to face it so this light is going to be completely solid like it is right now then gradually it's going to start flashing until it's totally dark so you can see that there's nothing to be afraid of okay See, that's not so scary, is it? Just you, your sister, and me. You're doing okay. It's not for you. It's okay. It's okay. You need to grow up! I'm serious, Sawyer! I need to be alone! You're both having these manifestations. What is this supposed to be? It's the thing that comes for your kids when you're not paying attention. to me okay i'm listening <laughs> sweetheart let me handle Dad! the boogeyman is directed by rob savage based on the short story of the same name by horror monolith stephen king Scott Beck and Brian Woods, the writing duo, known primarily for their work on the original screenplay behind John Krasinski's A Quiet Place, wrote the adaptation in 2018. But when Disney acquired Fox in 2019, the project was cancelled. 
In November of 2021, the project was revived, with Mark Heyman on board to rewrite the film based on Beckenwood's original drafts, and Rob Savage on board to direct. The film follows the two Harper sisters as they deal with the grief of losing their mother, and are tormented by a shadowy presence that exists only in the darkness, and that seems to live in their cupboards. They must convince their grieving father of its existence before it's too late. I've mentioned this a couple of times before on the show, but Stephen King is probably the most important writer in my life, based purely on the amount of material that I've consumed and the degree to which his writing has affected my tastes, both as a consumer and a creator of stories. So whenever a new Stephen King adaptation is announced, it's always on my radar to check out. As long as Stephen King stories have been adapted to the screen, there's always been a drastic gap between the quality of the better adaptations and the less successful ones. Even just this year, we had the ill-fated Firestarter remake, which was all sorts of awful, while in recent years we were also treated to films like Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep and Gerald's Game. So every time a new adaptation is announced, it always feels like a coin toss as to whether or not it's going to be a quality adaptation or another mess of a film that's doomed to the discount bin at JB Hi-Fi. In the case of The Boogeyman, I really couldn't tell on first glance. Director Rob Savage is an interesting case for me because before The Boogeyman was released as his third feature, his back catalogue of host and dashcam was entirely found footage, low-budget, pandemic horror films. I'm definitely not in the minority when I say that I really enjoyed Host, but Dashcam was my least favourite film of last year, and so I was very hesitant going into The Boogeyman. It was a very pleasant surprise and relief then to have enjoyed The Boogeyman as much as I did. It's certainly not anything greater or more ambitious than a solid Friday night popcorn horror film, but that's exactly what it's trying to achieve, and for my money, it does that very well. The first major thing I want to touch on as a huge positive in this film is the direction from Rob Savage. His work on Host and Dashcam does nothing to hint at how skilled and creative he is behind the camera, but given the budget and the sandbox to make something in the vein of Toby Hooper's Poltergeist or James Wan's The Conjuring, he rises to the occasion and injects every scene and every scare set piece with real energy and vibrancy. There is some very slick camera work that is impressive without distracting from the storytelling, and there is a huge amount of exciting and creative lighting work being done in this film. In particular, there are a number of scenes that make great use of a moon lamp, squeezing every inch of tension and suspense out of those scenes. An important thing for me in big horror blockbusters, though, is if the characters and the drama works underneath the frosting of the horror elements. Because almost invariably, big popcorn horror films like this don't scare me, and by and large, that was the case here with The Boogeyman. There's some great tension and suspense, don't get me wrong, but I never felt like I was scared in the way that I love in a great horror film. But in this case, I didn't particularly mind, because the characters and the drama are so well fleshed out that I was invested in their stories and in their arcs. There were moments towards the end of the film that I actually found myself tearing up at a little, because the film works as an exploration of grief and loss on its own. The monster simply serves as the film's genre-adjacent externalization of that theme. I was really, really happy and pleased to see this from Rob Savage, given how much I hated the lead character in Dashcam. On this film, he shows that he has a real skill for directing drama, not just for orchestrating scares. Which brings us to the titular monster, the Boogeyman. I think that the monster works best in this film when it's mostly covered in shadow. The quiet moments of sinking dread, the moments of cold fingers of fear on the back of the neck, are the ones that really work for me in this film. 
There's an uncanniness and a creepiness in these earlier moments of the film that reminded me of some of the work done by the aforementioned Mike Flanagan in his recent work, and the way that the dread and tension grew and leaked out of the screen was priming me for something much more subtle and nuanced than what we actually end up getting in the final act of the film. Don't get me wrong, I do love a good monster flick, but by the time the monster in this film is brought out into the light and confronts our protagonists, I was no longer finding the film tense or scary in the same way that I was when it was content to leave the monster in the lengthening shadows. In terms of performances, I have to give a huge shout out to Sophie Thatcher, who plays the lead character, Sadie Harper. The emotional backbone of the film largely rests on her performance, and she does a killer job. She is incredibly skilled in her portrayal of someone torn between unbelievable grief and loss and the frustration that she feels towards her family for not confronting that loss and moving forwards as a family. There's incredible depth in her performance and she provides the film with real momentum through that performance. Vivian Lyra Blair is also fantastic, an actress that many will recognise as young Princess Leia from the recent Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney+. Child performances in horror films are often not much more than caricature and annoyingly shrieky, but much like Sophie Thatcher, she performs her role with depth and maturity well beyond her years, easily reaching the bar set by Thatcher's performance. My biggest gripe with this film is that it just isn't very scary, which as a horror film is certainly something that you would like to see, and that once the monster is more fully realised and brought out of the shadows, the film loses a lot of the tension and dread that it had been building up until that point. Overall though, The Boogeyman is a solid, if not game-changing, Friday night popcorn horror film that plays well to an audience. If it's still playing in theatres by the time you've got this episode in your feed, definitely try and get out and see it before it leaves theatres, because it does deserve to be seen projected onto a giant screen. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something. On a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. This way! Fasten your seatbelt. There might be some turbulence. You've taken your chances, made your mistakes, and now a final triumph. Indiana Jones. A few times in my life I've seen things. I've been tortured with voodoo. Been shot nine times. Including once by your father. Ah, sorry. But I've been looking for this all my life. 
I was lucky enough to get to go and see an advanced screening of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and I have to say, overall, that it was a thoroughly entertaining time at the cinema. While I do certainly consider myself a fan of the Indiana Jones films, I don't think I'd ever actually seen them for a second time since seeing them as a younger kid, so I'm certainly not the sort of Indiana Jones fan that was dying to see another, perhaps final, instalment of the saga. On top of that, just like everyone else in the world, the underwhelming reception Kingdom of the Crystal Skull received had me on guard at the suggestion of another indie film. Thankfully, I would say that The Dial of Destiny is definitely significantly better than The Crystal Skull, but I do also think that it does slightly pale in comparison to the three original films. It's certainly not a film that attempts to reinvent the formula, and I think my biggest criticisms of the film come from the long stretches during which it does not much more than follow the formula. Indy shows up at a location looking for a thing, Bad Guy also shows up, and they have a big chase scene, and Indy escapes to another location, at which the cycle repeats. This formula isn't in and of itself bad, but unfortunately the Dial of Destiny does follow it too closely for too long a stretch through the middle of the film. It becomes predictable, repetitive, and annoyingly boring, the last thing you want from an Indiana Jones film. It also feels incredibly overindulgent in how long it chooses to play out these chase scenes. There are a number of exciting, well-executed set pieces that whip along at a good old pace, like the opening sequence on the train and the parade chase, but there are others that just go on for far too long and outstay their welcome. I do wonder to what degree this is to do with the absence of Steven Spielberg in the director's chair. That's not to say that James Mangold doesn't do a great job, I actually think he does a great job overall with this film, and he has greatly impressed me in the past with films like Logan. But perhaps Spielberg's eye for exciting and momentum-driven action would have served as a better judge for how long these indulgent and excessive chase sequences go on for. For example, despite everything wrong with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and even in a film as poorly received as that, Spielberg is still able to craft exciting and well-paced action scenes. But where the Dial of Destiny really excels is in its big swings. For long sections through the middle of the film that fell into the indie formula a little too closely, I was finding my attention and enjoyment slipping. But in its grand gestures and wild swings of the bat, I was glued to the screen. Case in point, the opening sequence on the train. I know a lot has been made about the CGI work in this particular scene, and not just in the digital de-aging of Harrison Ford. But overall... I really thought the CGI was fine, and more broadly, I tend not to actually let visual effects get in the way of my enjoyment of a film, unless they are particularly distracting. I'm looking at you, The Flash. Yes, it isn't perfect, but after a few seconds of adjusting to his presence on screen, I totally bought a younger Indiana Jones. Because really, that is the least important part of a wildly excessive, breathless, and ambitious action set piece that draws clear parallels to the opening sequence of The Last Crusade. The setting of a moving train is not a new one for action sequences, or even to Mangold for that matter, having directed Hugh Jackman as Wolverine on top of a bullet train fighting a particularly handsome Yakuza in 2013's The Wolverine. But Mangold does enough with the environment to keep the scene feeling fresh and vital, injecting character and setting in equal measure at any given opportunity. The other major swing that the film takes that I was 100% on board with is to do with its narrative choices, which I won't spoil here on the podcast. 
What it does, however, is commit to a particular narrative choice that at first glance would raise most sets of eyebrows. But very much in keeping with the very best of the Indiana Jones films, it commits fully to a concept that would usually be reserved for something like Star Trek or The Twilight Zone. I know that for some people this is where the film started to lose them, but for me, it was the complete opposite. It had started to lose me through its middle chunk, and then all of a sudden it took a hard right turn and swung hard at a bold narrative choice, and I was hooked again. It's potentially worth reminding people that the Indiana Jones films come from a heritage of melting the faces of Nazis with ancient mystical magic and hearts being torn from chests by cult members. For me, the final act of this film saved it from being simply a serviceable, if disappointing, conclusion to the trilogy and elevated it to something that, at the very least, is memorable in just how bonkers it gets. So I do think that The Dial of Destiny doesn't at all live up to the standard of the original films, but it is certainly a lot better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I don't hate Kingdom of the Crystal Skull as much as some people seem to. Mads Mikkelsen is effortlessly slimy and intimidating as the big bad, whilst also maintaining some of that B-movie campiness and silliness so synonymous with those first three films. Harrison Ford embodies an ageing indie with a self-awareness that allows the film to at least acknowledge that indie isn't the action star that he once was. It's hard for a film like this to fully commit to a portrayal of an ageing lecturer when said lecturer has to fire a gun on horseback or scuba dive into eel-infested remains, but regardless, you do feel like this is a man nearing the end of his time as a man of action and adventure. There are some nice character moments that I won't spoil that do provide Indy's character with a certain amount of closure and resolution that was satisfying, if only fleetingly so, for the casual fan. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, for me, is one of the film's strongest elements, as is Toby Jones. Both provide performances with real personality, and both give Indy's story a real sense of consequence and legacy. So overall, The Dial of Destiny is a perfectly serviceable conclusion to the Indiana Jones saga, but nonetheless, another film in the series that does seem perfunctory in the wake of The Last Crusade. At its worst, it's an overblown, poorly paced action film with endless chase scenes, but at its best, it's a wildly ambitious film with real heart that swings for the fences on a number of occasions. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch and let me know what you thought about either of these two films, or anything else that we've covered on the show, please do reach out. You can either find Blue Rose on socials, or you can contact us directly via email. The best platform to reach us on socials is Instagram. Follow Blue Rose Films for updates on the podcast, movie lists, Blu-ray collecting, and so much more. And our email address is bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. You can support this show by leaving a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, or you could just share it with a friend. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks again to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.